You're listening to Working, the show about what people do all day. I'm your host, Greg Lavalley, and I'm the director of technology here at Slate. On this mini-series of Working, brought to you by Microsoft, we'll be talking to coders, people who write software every day to help you log into websites, give you access to public data sets, or figure out where satellites are in space. For this episode, I talked to Marianne Bellotti, an engineering manager at Auth0. Marianne has slung code in a multitude of languages and now uses her skills to help manage hundreds of software engineers. We talked about what it's like to write COBOL, how she used coding to achieve her career goal of working for the State Department, and her management philosophy. I also got schooled on one of my own lightning round questions. What is your name and what do you do? Hi, uh, my name is Marianne Bellotti. I am an engineering manager, which means I run engineering teams currently for a company called Auth0. And what does Auth0 do? It's identity as a service. So basically it means we do logins for websites, mobile apps, all sorts of different clients. On a given day, do you write code for Auth0? Are you mostly managing people who write code for Auth0? So when I first started running engineering teams, I tried to do that. I tried to be writing code while also managing people. And the power dynamics of that get really messed up really quickly. So I learned that lesson really effectively (laughs) and really quickly. So I do write code, but I write code mainly for my own purposes. And I've shifted sort of my professional code writing to things that run in parallel to what my engineers are doing rather than like part of their process. So for example, I'm really big into something called formal specification or formal methods, which is this idea of can you prove that a computer program will always do the correct thing regardless of inputs and outputs? That's something that is um, not well adopted in engineering at large, so it doesn't conflict with anything my engineers are doing, but it allows me to provide a different level of insight and uh, sometimes contribution to the same technical conversation. So while my engineers are working through problems, I'll often be modeling the same problems with the formal specification languages I like to use to sort of see if I can find different outlier events that we want to consider in those conversations. So we're not entirely untechnical, but like the vast majority of our responsibilities are management. And you said formal specification mm-hmm. languages. Are these different computer languages than the rest of the engineering team would use? Yeah, I mean, that that's a, a point of contention among the formal specification community because the, there are some people that really don't like calling them languages because then the people think of them as programming languages and they're not. They're just, it's a, a formal syntax that a computer can parse in order to check that your model is correct. It'll run like, you can think of it in terms of like scenario analysis. So it'll run like, all of the various possibilities of inputs and outputs that you can give in it and compare it to the constraints that you have defined and see if it can find a scenario where something that you've told it is not supposed to happen actually will happen. So it's not a programming language per se, but from a non-technical perspective, the difference between the two of those is so thin and so narrow, it's almost irrelevant. And what language do most of the people write in? Like, what language do you end up reading the most of? In Auth0, we're primarily a Node.js shop. We've got a little bit of Go, and there's a little bit of Java in various parts of the architecture, but most everything is in Node. So JavaScript. How long have you been reading JavaScript or writing JavaScript, and what were you? What were you? What languages were you coding in before that? I was primarily Python. Um, I was familiar with JavaScript. I, was, I had built things in Node. Um, I thought. I think I probably thought that I was more familiar with Node than when I came to an organization that had basically 
built it out professionally and the entire product on top of it. And then I was like, whoa, all right. So like this has grown uh, a little bit more robust and a little bit more mature than the last time I really looked at it as a developer. So it's fun. I definitely learn things every day from watching my engineers work in it. But uh, I do like read and write JavaScript and that's super helpful when, when you're managing an engineering team to like understand the primary function of the team. In your years of experience coding in different languages, have you found that it feels like the ground is always moving because you learn one language and then you move on to another one and then you move on to the latest thing? I guess sort of like, do you, do you feel like that's good, bad, or both? I feel like it makes the situation complex. Not good, not bad. There's this whole conversation going on right now in the community about this idea of do you have to program in your spare time, right? Like, can't you just become a programmer, get, you know, get your skills in, in line, find a job, do it for work, and then do your hobbies in your free time? And the answer to that is yes, but the industry moves so quickly that you have to sort of think about how you keep, you're keeping your skills up to date. And so, I look at it this way, like you can have whatever hobbies you want. You can balance your work and life however you feel is appropriate. But you do have to have a certain level of passion because you have to be wanting to look at what's coming next in a gradual, incremental way. Otherwise, you'll turn around and the whole industry is moving in a completely different direction and you have to start from zero all over again. So I don't know that any programmer that thinks of it as just a job will ever be fundamentally successful. I, I think most programmers see it almost like a creative pursuit, like art or um, music or, or something like that, that it really has to be a medium that you're passionate about expressing yourself in, regardless of like whether you get paid to do it or not. And yeah, I'm picturing the cellist coming back from the symphony and being like, I'll pick that up again tomorrow at nine. Yeah, exactly. So there's kind of a breadth and depth sort of argument there that... Some some software engineers sort of say, I'm going to do Python and I'm just going to get super deep on it and I don't need to learn any of this other stuff because I'll always have a job doing Python. And then there's other folks who are like, oh, hey, there's a new language called Rust. I'm going to re-implement my personal website in Rust uh, to see what it does. I guess, do you fall into, into one of those categories? Do you think that there's like, I imagine it's like a long spectrum. Mm. Yeah, I, I've always been sort of more of the generalist versus the specializing in one particular language. Um, Because I don't know that I've ever really been enthusiastic about technology for technology's sake. I've always been enthusiastic about what can I build, what can I do, what can I accomplish with it. Um, One of the things that I like to tell people to sort of inform how I approach technology is that I spent like the first 10 years of my career desperately trying not to be a software engineer. Like my dad was a software engineer. I grew up with computers. Like our first computer was a Commodore 64. So I came into school like knowing how to program at a time when people did not know how to program. And so like computer science 101 was like the most boring idea in the world to me. I was like, no, I want to, like I'm interested in history. I'm interested in anthropology. I'm interested in the world and going out and seeing the world. And so like that, that is still at the heart of how I approach technology, I am less interested in like the 
gritty, uh, pedantic details of technology and more interested in its practical application. And so that means that, like, if we are looking at different languages and what is the best fit for a particular solution, we consider a wide variety of factors. We don't look at that in the sense of, like, there is one right language that is perfectly optimized for this purpose. Like, the fact that we have an engineering team that knows JavaScript better than anything else, like, is factored into how we choose technology, right? So if you went to history, how'd you end up programming like you didn't want to? Well, the the industry shift, right? So I, I'm going to now date myself. I entered college in the year 2000, and there was no Facebook. There was no Twitter. There was Google, but Google was a search engine. I don't even think Gmail was a thing at that point. So... Especially in the East Coast, which is where I'm from, I'm from New York. If you went and you were a computer science student at that time, you worked for either a bank, a hedge fund, or a Fortune 500 corporation. And it was basically boring work. You fast forward to like 10 years later, the industry is completely different. Now you talk about social science and there's like all sorts of interesting data and all sorts of of stuff going on in the technology space. And like really the social science uh, stuff has moved into the technology sector. And so in terms of impact, in terms of projects, in terms of things that were interesting to me, it was all suddenly now in tech. And I was like, oh, well, I do know how to program. Maybe I should just like focus on that for a while. So I I basically brushed up on my programming skills and got some people to give me a shot and started working on engineering teams. And it was funny because like if you'd asked me when I graduated college what my career goals were, I would have told you that I either want to work for the UN or the State Department. And I spent a huge amount of time kind of running around the globe, working for little nonprofits and NGOs, which was tremendously rewarding, but got me no closer to that goal. But when I finally sat down and started committing myself to the life of software engineer, one of my friends like pinged me and said, you know, the UN is doing this project with this thing called CCAN. It's written in Python. Do you know anything about it? And it actually had turned out that I didn't know quite a great deal about it. And so I was able to go and work for the UN like I'd always wanted through doing software. And then later when I joined United States Digital Service, the first thing they did is sort of say, hey, do you want to go to the State Department and fix some problems? And I was like, okay, cool. Now I need new career goals because I've just literally checked all the things off the list. That's great. So the, those are the two main industries that you programmed in was like once for the UN and then once for the, the State Department? Yeah, I did some startup work, but it was mainly in kind of the public sector with nonprofits, NGOs, governments uh, up until recently. I think my experience at USDS made me really want to enter the private sector for real like not just with a small 10-person company, but with like a larger company and kind of try to see if I could apply my skills in that environment. And so far, it's been incredibly rewarding. And for listeners who might not know, what, what's the U.S. Digital Service, the ah. USDS? So um, United States Digital Service is basically a SWAT team of technical experts that help try to resolve um, IT failures in the government. Um, the the classic Wait, story. Wait, there are IT failures in government. Yeah, <laughs> so you may have heard of this thing called healthcare.gov that um, the government tried to launch, and it went really, really, really badly. And so my old boss, Mikey Dickerson, was called in to see if he could help fix that, and ran a team that basically kind of pushed it online and kept it up and running through open enrollment. 
And then after that happened, the Obama White House was like, that seems like a good idea. Maybe we could be useful to have these people around more often. So kind of pulled him in to start recruiting people to come in and sort of help the government with some technical problems. And I was part of the the crew that got pulled in to do that, which was a lot of fun. What is the oldest code you had to deal with uh, at USDS? I mean, I had to do deal with some mainframes that were built in the 50s. So we're talking about COBOL, like really old COBOL. Is really old COBOL something you need to prepare for? <laughs> How do you even, there's no documentation online, is there? So that was one of the fun challenges of it. That was one of the things I liked the best is that you couldn't like coast by on experience with one particular language, you had to sort of take things back down to computer science fundamentals and kind of use a lot of deductive reasoning. Like, what do I know? And like, what does this look like? And then go from there. So it was always a really interesting challenge, especially on um, the interviewing side, which is something that I got really involved in at USDS and carried over to all zero. It's like, how do you assess the skills of engineers when you need Java one day, COBOL the next day, Ruby the next day, like something else the next day, like a language no one ever heard of, a tool that no one's used in like 60 years? Like how do you assess the skills and abilities of software engineers in that environment? And so that was a really important question for USDS, and I found that like fascinating, you know, like how do you assess people's skills? People who are listening who've never written a line of code, can you think of something that you'd want them to know, um, like one thing that you think you'd want them to know about coding or your job that it would be important for them to understand? I mean, like, I've been thinking lately that, like, the hallmark of a really good manager is willingness to be fired, (laughs) especially with technology. Wow. Technology is all about risk because it's always changing. And especially when you're operating at scale, eventually you get to a point where, you know, that old expression, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? Well, that doesn't work in technology because, like, it's always changing. It's always evolving. And especially around the security space, if you're not keeping it in line with, like, not the cutting edge, but, like, generally what's current, then you're going to have security vulnerabilities on your system, really deep and complicated ones. So you have that this essential challenge with you have, like, millions potentially billions of people using a particular product. You need to change it sometimes in fundamental ways, but changing it is risk. So like, how do you manage that risk? And like a huge part of my job as an engineering manager is putting myself in the line of fire so that my engineers can make those decisions smartly without worrying about what's going to happen to them if things go wrong. Because we can't perfectly predict. Like we do everything in our power to test. We do everything in our power to like get in front of problems, but we cannot perfectly predict everything that might happen as a result of a change. So a huge part of my job is the not so nice term for it is shit umbrella, is to like be the umbrella over the engineering team, like keeping the the shit from raining down of, upon them. And the people who are willing to do that are good managers in an engineering space. And the people who are not willing to do that, who are fundamentally thinking about their career and their safety, are not good managers. The shit funnels. <laughs> yeah. They condense the shit. Yes. The, the concent- I steal that. I'm the gonna- concentrators. <laughs> so working on a product that is, you know, people's most valued thing, right, is your password. Mm-hmm. Hopefully you have many, many, many passwords. <laughs> um, but does that, does that to you provide fear, a challenge? Like, is it harder to sleep knowing that you're responsible for a system that millions of people are relying on to be secure? 
Hmm. It would be if I was solely responsible for it, right? And that's the thing that I tell my engineers when they are like backing off something because they're scared is that this is a team. No one is going to let you make that decision by yourself. And um, everything that you do is going to be reviewed. So there are multiple people that are going to have eyes on it and contribute to it before it goes live. And you should trust those people. So we have a team of, I think, about 150, might be at 200 now, and all zero engineering. And there's some really incredibly brilliant people. And then on top of that, we have a system that is designed to allow us to respond really quickly to problems, like rollback changes if they turn out to be bad situations, trigger incidences and get people on conference bridges super fast. And so you have to understand that it's never a scenario of like one engineer doing a thing that screws everything up. It's a system failure. And that's a whole part of what we call just culture and blameless postmortems, this idea that we don't single people out for making individual mistakes. Because if you were allowed to make an individual mistake, the system failed. We should never put you in a position where you're allowed to make an individual mistake. So I don't spend a lot of time worrying about that specifically because I trust my team and I trust to the larger team that we're a part of. Is there some group of people out there that is like a constant threat? Um, Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like, people worry about Russian hackers. I don't worry about Russian hackers so much. I worry about, like, domestic white supremacists much more than I worry about Russian hackers. So, What are your hours like? <laughs> when do you show up? When do you leave? Um, I'm generally kind of roughly a nine-to-five person. I have an engineer that's in Bali. This was not something that I do by design. Generally speaking, I like to keep everybody in my engineering team more or less time zone boxed within two to three hours of one another for maximum time. But this, I inherited this team from another manager and this person who's brilliant was on this team. And so that makes things more complicated. I occasionally have to get up at seven for a meeting or stay up a little bit later at a meeting so that we can all coordinate. But one of the, I think one of the really important skill sets to learn as a manager is to be comfortable with not working, right? Because if you're not comfortable with not working, then you're probably going to turn around and micromanage somebody who doesn't need to be micromanaged, right? So I have this whole philosophy about work where I'm like, you know what? If it's like 2, 3 o'clock in the afternoon and you've finished your work for the day, go home, see some friends, see some family, put that in the bank. Because all my engineers are on call, which means that uh, for those of you who are not familiar with an on-call rotation, if something goes wrong with all zero, they may be paged and asked to come back to work at three o'clock in the morning or whenever it happens. So because of that, I am very flexible about exactly what hours we work. And I would rather than rather than an engineer find something to do with his time for another couple hours that he go home and take that rest so that if he's on call and he gets paged, he has something in the bank he's well-rested and can, like, respond effectively. So I'm roughly 9 to 5, but I'm very flexible. How So you have 200 engineers. Mm-hmm. About there. They're divided into additional teams. Mm-hmm. And then how do they all work together and communicate? Like, what is the st- structure in which they manage to actually put code somewhere that other people can use it? Yeah, so that is an ongoing challenge regardless of the engineering team you're on. And I think what's really interesting and what attracted me to a company about the size of Oz Zero is that about, when you get to about 100 to 150, there's no like hard number on it, but when you get to about that range, 
before that point, you've mainly been collaborating based on personal relationship, right? So I trust you because I know you. We've worked together for a really long time. I know your strengths. I know your weaknesses. You send me a pull request. I accept the pull request because, like, I trust you. What's a pull request? Oh, I'm sorry. That's uh, how, like, you contribute code to my code base. So everything's based basically on personal relationship or can be based on personal relationship when you're under 100 people. When you start to get over 100 people, now there are people who are working with you who you don't have a personal relationship and you don't have like a first or second degree of separation. Like sometimes it's like, well, I don't have a personal relationship with that person, but this person that I trust, trusts this person. So now you need to start developing two things. You need process and you need hierarchy because that's the thing that people are going to trust. They're going to trust the process and they're going to trust a little bit of hierarchy. But in technology, people were kind of like, ah, it's bureaucracy. Get rid of bureaucracy. It's bad. Get rid of that. So it's about getting the right amount of process and the right amount of hierarchy in order to facilitate trust and communication. Um, And, like, to be at an organization that has reached that point and knows they have reached that point was, like, super attractive to me. I was like, yeah, this is what I'm all about. I love this stuff. So... I spend a lot of time thinking about this. Like the way we're broken down as an engineering org is that we have different domains. So we'll have the product facing side of engineering, the people who are actually building the login flows. And then we'll have my side of the organization that's really more infrastructure, the stuff that all that stuff is built on top of and making sure that it scales and then it's secure and that it runs well. And so within those domains, you will then have separate teams that have separate responsibilities. And so we're currently talking about within infrastructure, as we look to mature how Ocero is designed, like how do we break down responsibilities in a way that makes sense, but also encourages collaboration when collaboration needs to happen across teams. And it's a huge challenge. And there's never a point where you like, it's solved. It's great. Everything's fine, right? Our engineering uh, is fully distributed. Not all of the company is fully distributed. A lot of the business sides are co-located in offices, but engineering is fully distributed. So Slack is essential. Zoom is essential. And being able to understand when a conversation needs a meeting and when it needs to be an async conversation across one of those platforms, probably a Slack channel, is like a huge part of that process. I could go on 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 this forever and ever more than you ever wanted to hear about. Have you worked in places where it was, you know, altogether, semi-distributed and fully distributed? Yeah. And do you have a sort of a preference in that group? I mean, the the hard thing about having a semi-distributed engineering team is that a lot of work will get done in person. And if you have people that are remote, You need to figure out a way to include them and keep them in the loop and, like, make them still feel part of the team. So my preference is either the whole engineering team is distributed or the whole engineering team is co-located because it's hard to do that half and half well. But then you get to this this thing where like a lot of older organizations are in transition. Like they they want to bring that remote culture, but they have the co-located culture. And like, how do you handle that transition as well? I have a friend of mine who wrote an entire book on the subject. So I was going to ask, do you have like resources that you rely on for thinking about these sort of things? Like you could do trial and error for, you know, mm-hmm. forever, but there's also people who have done trial and error already. So, you know, where are you looking for sort of that 
that information. Yeah. So I'm going to plug my friend's book, former USDSR, John O'Dwin wrote a book called Distributed Teams, where he like talks through a lot of these problems that he faced when he worked at Mozilla and other companies. And like working with him, I learned a lot. Like before I started working with him, I was the kind of person that like turned off my camera when we were on a video chat because I'm insecure and I don't want you to see what my hair looks like or whatever. And he was like, really like, no, there's so much communication that you're missing when you're not seeing a person's face. And I thought about that and I went, oh God, he's right, isn't he? Okay, fine. And then I started turning my camera on and I realized that the quality of those conversations was like dramatically better. And so I was like, oh, okay. So I learn a lot from interacting with other managers and other organizations. There's a great series of conferences called Lead Dev that take a place around the country. And also I think in there's one in London, there's one in Berlin where they bring engineering managers and lead developers from different teams to just give like short talks about challenges they face. And those are all online. They're all on YouTube. And like sometimes on a Saturday night, I will just like sit in my pajamas and like load up the YouTube playlist and like watch a whole bunch of them all at once. And so it's fascinating to listen to other managers talk about the challenges they faced and how they solved them. I really like that as a resource. Wow. That sounds like a super chill Saturday night. <laughs> it is. I have like my little jade roller and like a face mask. And <laughs> I'm totally going to do this too. Like I'm making fun of it, but I'm like, I could use that. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Do you remember the Volkswagen diesel gate? Yeah. The basic summary is that, you know, someone programmed the car to act one way when mm-hmm. it was being tested and act a different way when it's actually on mm-hmm. the road. And the programmer, who was a lead develop, one of the lead developers, was sentenced to prison. Yeah. I wondered how you feel about sort of the idea that the, the software engineer would end up serving time for it. Mm. This is a hot topic right now, like ethics in computer science, mm-hmm. particularly around, you know, what is going on with Facebook and Google and the impact of these technologies at scale and like what form of accountability do people have? In this particular case, I think it's the right decision because it's outright fraud, right? Like, it's not like they didn't know what they were trying to do. Like, I think you could make an argument that with some of the stuff that's happened around AI, uh, it's awful, particularly on racial bias, but it was not the intention of the software engineer to produce something that was racially biased in, in that kind of destructive manner. But this one, it's like they quite clearly knew what they were trying to accomplish by writing it that way. So it's a different, there's a different layer of nuance with it. I think that if software engineers as a culture are going to run around talking about changing the world as often as they do, then it's worthwhile to be more thoughtful about that. I think you can't have it both ways. Either like you're just a cog in the machine or you're here to make an impact and change the world. And if you're here to make an impact and change the world, then you really have to ask yourself, how are you changing it and for whom, right? So, I mean, ultimately, we'll see how the industry matures around this this question. It's going to be an interesting couple of years, especially with an election coming up again. It's going to bring all that stuff into the forefront once again. 
Yeah, I'm sure floating out there, there's some Hippocratic Oath for software engineers that's MIT licensed somewhere. <laughs> but is that a good idea? That, that, that has been part of the conversation is, is should there be some kind of version of the Hippocratic Oath for software engineers? And I don't think it's a bad idea, truthfully. I mean, in the security space, you have the concept of the white hat, the gray hat, the black hat hacker. Like, can you be a person who discovers and exploits security vulnerabilities ethically? And like, what kind of behaviors does that mean that you do or do not do? So that's been a conversation that's been going on in the security space since like the 90s, probably before then. And there's a general consensus about what is ethical behavior for a hacker. So I see no reason why there can't be the same sort of general consensus in the software community about what ethical behavior is. I have, uh, I'm going to do my lightning questions. Oh, cool. I, I got to bring them up. Uh, so I'm just going to like ask some questions and you just like say the first thing that comes to mind. And if you want to expand on it, you okay. can. Okay. Tabs or spaces? Oh, God. Tabs all the way. <laughs> um, <laughs> I know it's very controversial, but uh, like I have bad eyesight and I like separation. And I feel like if you got to use six spaces, just use the tab. <laughs> oh, whoa. Six space tabs. That's even more controversial. Oh, uh, well, uh, whatever. <laughs> Um, I know you're gonna you're gonna put this part in, and this is the part no. that's gonna get people trolling on Hacker News <laughs> for like the rest of my life. Well, you wouldn't be, you wouldn't be the first. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm curious. Uh, yeah, we could like dig into the tabs versus spaces debate. Well, Do this you... is one of the wonderful things about IDEs is that I can set my ID just to convert all of my tabs to spaces. What's an IDE? Uh, uh, God, was a code editor? Integrated Integrated Development, development Environment. Environment. Yes. Um, ah. Yeah. <laughs> I right, am, right, this is so. this is one of the legacies from working in the federal government. I am acronym bankrupt. I no longer acknowledge <laughs> acronyms. I no longer accept new acronyms. So, yeah, I mean, like this is one of the wonderful things about code environments is that I can usually configure them to convert my tabs to spaces. So, like we can decide whatever. I, I mean, I know that Python prefers spaces over tabs. I get it. Fine. Like I'm not. Uh, I'm on management now. I don't have to be in sync with the rest of the Python community. But I can also like have my like obnoxious way. I like do it and the technology will fix it for me so that everybody else on the dev team gets what they want too. We don't have to have these arguments anymore. They'll never know. Yeah, they'll I, never know. You save the file and it magically Just tabbing all the time. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's sort of uh, one of those coding industry things where yeah. there's like a raucous debate about whether or not to use tabs or spaces and no one else cares. I'm surprised you didn't ask me Vims versus Emacs. I mean, <laughs> I can't. Like, I just, that would be a whole different podcast, right? We'd have to have a separate, a whole separate show about just Vim versus Emacs. Emoji in code, good idea or bad idea? Uh, I'm going to say bad idea. Favorite programming language to code in? Ooh. Um, probably Python. 80 character column widths versus other. See, this is a fun fact. You know where the 80 character column width comes from? Uh, I mean, it's the old school terminal interface, right? Didn't have a resolution that required it? It is the size of a punch card. Oh, punch For an card. old mainframe. Yeah. Oh, man, we're going to edit that out so I sound right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, she's going to leave it in. It's fine. <laughs> I'm comfortable with my lack of knowledge about punch cards. So, I don't really care about column width and like normal non uh, punch card related code, but I'm very nostalgic whenever I hear that. I'm like, oh, 80, 80 columns. Yeah, yeah, that's the punch card. I actually had an engineer who had a punch card framed on his wall. And I was like, I don't, I don't know what that says about you, truthfully. We have an existing pull request in the slate.com code base to increase the column width to 120 characters. And no one 
has even commented on it. I think I commented, I was like, this would be a good debate ticket. And then nothing, just nothing. So let's see. Favorite code editor. I'm super, super basic. I like TextMate, Sublime. I know, I mean, the, one of this is the indulgence of being an engineering manager is that I understand the power of like more powerful IDs, but I just really like just something very, very basic. I've been using Atom more and more lately. So just something super, super basic. Deploying code on Fridays, bad idea or worst idea? <laughs> no. So like, this is actually a conversation we, we had at Zero a couple months ago. If you are afraid to deploy code on Fridays, again, we go back to that's a problem with the system, right? It shouldn't matter what day you deploy code on. So if an engineer wants to leave it until Monday, I don't know that it necessarily gives them a lot of trouble on that one. But um, as a general rule, I think if you're not comfortable deploying on literally any day of the week, there's something wrong with your system that needs to be addressed. Right. You need a rollback strategy yeah. that works. Yeah. On the other hand, I would definitely recommend not deploying before everyone on your engineering team gets on a plane to like go to an offsite. <laughs> Been there. That's when you're fixing it on the bus to the offsite. Yeah. Do you have an opinion on the caps lock key? And if so, what is it? I mean, like as a person that's written a non-significant amount of COBOL, sometimes the caps lock key is a, a, uh, an important tool in the process. So for people who don't know COBOL, it's basically all in caps lock. That's like an old terminal thing. But like in modern day, it just feels like you're yelling at everyone like all the time. So it's a COBOL different form of extreme programming. Screaming, the screaming <laughs> language. Yeah. yeah. And when was the last time you updated your personal website? I don't have a personal website. I have a, a Medium blog that I guess sort of passes, but I try to keep personal stuff off the Medium blog for obvious reasons. I mean, this is one of the benefits of being like a 90s script kitty is I got all of my angst out on the internet on LiveJournal and the Usenet. And, like, I burned th that out real quick. Like, I have no desire to broadcast, like, my life to the world or who I am to the world anymore. Only the Russians have your live journal yeah. somewhere. <laughs> I bet they do. Thinking about Script Kitty time, mm. like, what was the first program that you remember writing that you liked? Oh, God. I don't know. Like, because a lot of what I would do is take code that other people had written and F around with it until it did something that I wanted it to do. I think I, I kind of had this weird um, side quest, for lack of a better term, where I found this old, um, I think it's a Super Nintendo game called Game Maker or something like that, where I found an emulator of it or, or something and I was futzing around with it. And the first time I saw Python, I realized that there was a feature in that particular game where you could like, you could do kind of a, almost like a, what's it called, Scratch? What's the MIT uh, programming language for kids? Yeah, Scratch. Yeah, you could do sort of that drag and drop interface for things. But then you could, there was this button where you could just open up this editor and you could see the actual code. And so it opened the editor and write the actual code. And the first time I saw Python, I was like, oh, wait, that's basically exactly the same thing. I was writing code in Python and I didn't even realize it that entire time. So there was a period of time where I wasn't taking programming very seriously, where I was building these little um, games in this, this game program that I had found online and writing all of this code and what I eventually figured out was Python. Um, I was pretty, like that entertained me for quite some time. I was pretty happy about that. <laughs> uh, Marianne, thank you so much for coming in. This is a great conversation. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
That's it for this episode of Working. Once again, I'm your host, Greg Lavalley. If you like the show, please give us a rating review on Apple Podcasts. And if you have any thoughts or questions, you can email us at working at slate.com. Working is produced by Jessamine Molly. Special thanks to Justin D. Wright for the ad music. All three of these episodes of Coders are in your feed now. So if you like this one, go listen to the other two. <laughs>